immersion. That ever ephemeral and elusive quality that referees around the world strive for in their games. We speak in stupid voices to support it. We write long, boring purple prose to enforce it. And we either spend hours and hours creating blender environments in VTTs to support it, or we 3D print expensive and detailed set dressing to put our meticulous painted miniatures into in its name. But what is immersion? And do the things that we do actually help? That's what I'm going to talk about today on Clerics Wear Ringmail. First, let's comment to what immersion actually is. My go-to dictionary, the Webster English since 1828, defines immersion as the act of immersing or the state of being immersed, such as a absorbing involvement, immersion in politics, b instruction based on extensive exposure to surroundings or conditions that are native or pertinent to the object of study, especially foreign language instruction in which only the language being used is taught. Learned French through immersion. Or C, baptism by complete submersion of a person in water. While I will confess that some of my players I would like to submerge completely in water, the first definition, number A, that is what immersion means in a role-playing game. Immersion is a state of being engrossed, a state of being involved, and a state of being attentive in the game. First, I want to talk about getting into character. There are elements in the role-playing sphere who will maintain that immersion is only possible if you see the world through your character's eyes. If you can forget that you're on Earth for a minute and suddenly be in Forgotten Realms or wherever. These people will insist on talking in the first person. These people will insist on role-playing with uh, other characters player characters at the campsite while you're on watch. These people will barter with the townsfolk for hours at a time to the detriment of the adventure. And worst of all, some of these people will do things that are detrimental to the survival of the party or the success of the mission you're on because that's what my character would do. This is reinforced by a disturbing trend in more produced actual plays where you have literal actors coming in, wearing costumes on stream, looking pretty at cons, and bouncing off of each other in improv theater hour, instead of actually playing the game, 
or showcasing anything about the game that they claim to be part of the stream. But that's another story, and that's why I have my actual play review series on the blog. The point I'm trying to get to is that there is an unhealthy conflation in the current environment of immersion, being in character, and method acting. Let me be the first to tell you, immersion is not method acting. Immersion, like I said before the music of the intro, immersion is a state of engrossment. Immersion is being involved in the game and being a part of the party at the table. Do you actually forget that you're a human being sitting at a kitchen table in small town USA somewhere? No, of course not. That would be silly. If you do, consider getting psychiatric help. That's not how that works. Like I said, immersion is a byproduct of being engrossed in the game, of being a part of the game. Is speaking in the first person bad? No. Is wearing a costume at the table bad? Not necessarily. But these things are not necessary. If they draw you into the game, awesome. I love that you're being drawn into the game and that you're actually playing. But they are not necessary. They are not obligatory, nor are they a guarantee to bring you closer to your character. So what is immersion not? Immersion is not costumes, method acting, or role-playing with the NPCs until the other players fall asleep. Next, I want to talk about VTTs. What is a VTT? A VTT, or virtual tabletop, is simply a tabletop that your friends playing a tabletop role-playing game with you don't have to sit physically next to. In addition, to providing that link between folks who aren't in proximity to one another, the, uh, most VTTs will have other features akin to what your kitchen table can do. You can grab character sheets and put them on the tabletop. You can roll dice on your tabletop. A lot of them will have persistent storage for stuff like character sheets and handouts uh, and chat histories which can act as a notes so in addition to being your kitchen table, it's also your trapper keeper. Does this break immersion? I submit no. Having a battle mat and having your pogs move around and do all that jazz, that's no different than having a Chessex wet erase mat and moving your minis around. If you want to play theater of the mind, play theater of the mind. No one is forcing you to use it for anything other than document storage or handouts. In the same sense, at your home table, if you don't play with miniatures, don't play with miniatures. No one is forcing you to play with miniatures, and no one said that your kitchen table breaks immersion because you have miniatures or don't have miniatures on it. I would actually like to meet some people who can only role play in the woods. I guess that's what LARPs are for. Can virtual tabletops break immersion? Yes, they can. People can have uh, issues with the tech. Your, vid your video or your voice can go out. Your connection can jack up. The macros can be poorly recorded. Your referee might have forgotten to upload some stuff, and that'll take some time to push it out there. 
absolutely it can. But at the same time, you can misplace items in your campaign notebook. You can spill sodas on your kitchen table. Those kind of interruptions happen. And while you're not going to have connection issues on your VTT, that's no less an interruption than a Coke over the DMG at the kitchen table. And again, you don't say that your kitchen table breaks immersion because somebody is a klutz with his friggin' Coke. I'm looking at you, Cheeto Fingers. Do you have to use a virtual tabletop to play with your buddies who are in a different state or a different country? No, of course not. You can use anything that supports voice chat. You can use anything that supports text chat. Really, all you need is a way to communicate back and forth as a group. But that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that virtual tabletops in and of themselves are not immersion breakers. Instead, they are tools which you can use for people who are more or less visual to produce an experience that's conducive to immersion. If the visual doesn't help you, if the miniatures don't help you, then you don't have to use them. But if the miniatures do help you, if the handouts do help you, absolutely do use it. If you think about it, if you're working on Discord or something, you can set your picture to show as your character, so people think it's your character talking when you're talking. But that kind of ties back into my rant against method acting earlier. Where's the line, guys? I don't want to find out. To that end, VTTs are a tool, nothing more. If they help your group, awesome. If they don't, ditch them. But Taylor, I contend that miniatures and dice, those are natural immersion breakers. Because if I see miniatures on the board or if I hear dice clattering, it's a reminder that I am me and not my character, and it prevents me from seeing the world through their eyes. That's why my storyteller and I always theater of the mind. That's cool, imaginary straw man, and I'm glad that you figured out what works for your table. But consider this. What is the purpose of dice in a game? The purpose of dice in a game is to introduce entropy, to introduce chance and risk of failure. Don't tell me, playing baseball, you've hit every pitch that was thrown over the plate. Don't tell me, climbing stairs, you've never missed one and stumbled. We all have... We all have... It's because life doesn't always win. We have hiccups. There is water on the stairs. The, the pitcher throws a slider and we don't see it coming. If you are working with your storyteller and it's always yes and and there's no entropy involved, if it's always based on what should happen uh, from the perspective of the other players, that's fine, but that's not a game. That's collaborative storytelling. That's collaborative world building. I was in a lot of creative writing workshops back in the day when I used to get to write for pleasure. That's how they go. That is the written word equivalent of improv acting. So you and your fellows are working on a novel, not working on a game. In the same sense, if you aren't rolling dice and you aren't opening that room for unexpected failure, that's not immersive. 
That's not real life. Your character is not more verisimilitudinous. Not sure if that's a word, but I'm going to use it. You don't improve your believability by always having predictable outcomes. Predictable not in the sense that your storyteller isn't going to throw you a curveball once in a while, but predictable in the sense that it's always going to follow the narrative that you and your players are going to set. In the same sense... Ah, shucks, I realized I was supposed to buy diapers on the way home. You guys got me ranting. I missed my diaper store. Where was I? The point is, if you have an element of failure that's outside of your control, that's neutral from the perspective of the referee, that is a better imitator of real life, a better provider of verisimilitude than collaborative world building, collaborative story building. And the reason that is the case is because it adheres to the entropic principles of real life. I'm going to have a blown tire for no reason. Not narrative, it just happened. I'm going to miss that uh, I'm going to miss that shot not because it makes the conclusion better but because I just happened to have my shoe tied incorrectly. So, really want to get immersed? Get into something that's more believable. The chance of random failure. Thank you Dice and thank you Grandpapa Gary. And that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I bet you'd forgotten I was able to do short episodes. I sure had. <laughs> and now, let's ruin the moment and bring in a bunch of callers. Callers, take it away! Oh, Taylor, I'm afraid I can't help you with your grapefruit tree, mate. Citrus fruit, I believe, is notoriously tricky. Uh, the soil round where I live and the climate, definitely, uh, it's a no-no. I tried to grow a lemon for a while uh, as a kind of indoor plant in a pot. I had no luck with that. It it had fruit on it when I bought it, and that was the last time it ever fruited. Um, so yeah, I think Florida, you're in the right place. I believe it's Florida you're at. Um, yeah, so I imagine there's loads of folks around your way that are way more better equipped to help you out than me and uh, hope you're well and uh, looking after that expanding family take care and i'll catch you later indeed north florida i am climate wise just on the border of what people consider florida weather so it does get warm here and humid in the summer and then it stays that way for most of the year but we get a little bit of a cool spell every winter where it gets into the uh, sweater weather to speak to citrus i personally don't have any citrus i have a pomegranate tree i have a persimmon tree Persimmons are weird. Uh, they make your mouth numb when you chew on them. Uh, I don't know if that's supposed to be part of the fruit experience uh, or if my house is built on a uh, forgotten graveyard uh, or maybe a nuclear waste site. Perhaps I'll never know. And my son has a lot of yard work to do. We have a lot of yard work to do. We do. You finished Everybody's finishing up. 
where was I? Oh, citrus. One person I know who did have citrus was my grandfather, the one who passed recently. Uh, in the 60s, he and family had purchased a antebellum estate on the south side of the river, and it, about an acre or so of land, and it had a little grove on it. They had uh, tin, uh, was it tangerines, uh, I think, or nectarines. It, was, it looked like an orange, tasted like an orange, and my grandmother used to get ticked off at us when we would pull them off the trees and throw them at each other like a snowball fight in the summer. Alas, I don't know if I can help you with the lemon. However, what I can do is tell you about the lemon-esque, I think it was a, it was a subgenre of grapefruit that my grandfather also had. The fruit was so appallingly sour that it would pucker three or four feet around whoever ate it. So stand too close to someone who's eating it, ooh, it's catching. But uh, the running the running gag was that you fed one of those to someone who didn't know any better, uh, and or you would uh, dare each other to try them and see who could last the longest. Anyway, it is definitely a possibility. If I'm able to grow one, I'll mail one your way. Thanks for calling in, my man. Thank you for calling in. Hey, Taylor, Jason here. Just listen to your Callers Unite episode. Great episode. Great calls from Randy and Graveslug and John and James. I'm probably missing somebody. Sorry, guys. Um, I, I couldn't totally make out what Randy was saying, but I, I think I agree with that. With Graveslug, I'm almost lockstep with him. Although I do concede with you that there's no question with using Chainmail for the combat system, you can do pulp with od and I mean, all you have to do is look at what Daniel over at Bandit's Keep is doing with it. But but OD&D with the D20 system, I would agree with him. As far as John and the group house rules, yeah, I, I have never run a game where I've had different house rules for different groups, but i played in like more than one OSC campaign, campaign at a time that have had different house rules, which may be one of the reasons I kind of dislike them to some degree because I, I still remember those experiences. The Scarlet Citadel comes to mind. Spoilers to follow, if you can spoil a hundred-year-old story, it's one of the Conan the Barbarian pulps written by Robert E. Howard himself, the original. So that's one of my defaults when I think about sword and sorcery, specifically the way that D&D is supposed to emulate. You start off with some mass battle, uh, it moves into some tunnel crawling and some uh, pitch black. Literally, Conan drops the torch and has to figure out what to do. And then more foul sorceries to save the day and another mass battle to, to get out uh, on the other side. So, the Scarlet Citadel, definitely a beautiful piece uh, to use either in Chainmail OD&D or in Daniel's systems, uh, which I'm going to call Rippling Abs. Uh, for his OD&D version and uh, the Converse Sword and Sorcery Chainmail exclusive game he's working on, which I'm going to call Look at These Lads. Not his titles, but mine are better. So, Daniel, I know you listen to the podcast. Got some titles for you. Cut myself off there, but, you know, since I played in the same game system or similar game systems with different house rules, maybe it was I was playing like in a sword and wizardry game and an OSC game at the same time or something, and I, I realize that's not a fair comparison, but I, I don't know. I, th there's nothing wrong with house rules as long as you and your group are happy with them. I think that James had an interesting point 
you know, about with new players, which you've kind of talked about as well. I, I think a lot of us in the anchor sphere, a lot of us podcasters are kind of spoiled. I know I'm spoiled because most people I play with also GM, so they're happy to learn new systems. So I don't, I, I personally don't have that issue, um, but I can definitely see where it would be. And it, as far as Randy's call from what I took from it, you, you know, definitely you need to take your players in mind and, and keep your players in mind when you're making those house rules. While I'm not of a mind that the referee, it's their job to entertain, I am on the same page. At the end of the day, uh, the players have to jive with the rules because uh, you're here to have fun. That's what everybody's here for. And if you're producing a mediocre to poor experience, why not do something else? Uh, you're, if you have players at the table, that means that you are at least as interesting, if not a little bit more so, than television. Like you, I was blessed, uh, permanent-like almost, in college. Uh, my group loved playing bunches of games. We would ch try different things, try new things, mess with the rules, change out our homebrews. And One downside to that, though, is that everybody else always wanted to run a game. <laughs> I could never run a game longer than uh, uh, a few dozen sessions. Now, they say that the average session for the current edition, the average length of a campaign is six sessions, and I beat the snot out of that every time, but it kind of fell on its head because a lot of the time I had uh, hooks that I wanted to use that I didn't get to because the guys would get tired and retire. <laughs> It's better to, uh, as, an, as another great podcast likes to put it, it's better to burn out or than, yes, better to burn out than fade away. And if my campaign's burned hot and ended on high notes, I'll take it. I do like the idea that most of the people calling your show are in with collaborative house rules where the players get a say in them. Unlike most of the groups I've been in where the GM just you know, slaps down a sheet of paper and said, these are the house rules or get out of my house. Like my house rules. Okay, they didn't quite say that, but that's effectively what they said, right? These are the house rules and you don't have a say in them. So I do, I do like the idea of collaborative house rules. But anyhow, great episode. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate what you're doing and keep up the great work. I will keep on recording them if you keep on calling in. I appreciate you, Jason. Like a fighter appreciates a magic sword. Thank you for the call, and Delvon. Okay, Taylor, this is Randy. I'm not sure if I'm still using the old Edison phone or not. I'm tr calling from my car. We'll test this and see how it works. Maybe I need to have access to Wi-Fi. I've heard it sound good. So, on the competition, you want a monster from another game, another version of D&D, to be statted in my favorite version of D&D, or to be statted in my favorite game. It'll be D&D, but I'm just kind of wondering how this works. And when I call in, do you want the gruesome details, or just how I would generally approach it? So, just wondering. Loving the podcast. Good with the work, bud. Bye. Thanks for calling, Randy. That's a good question you ask, and I will answer it forthwith. The contest is, of course, uh, as he references, an open entry. Uh, send me a message on Anchor, an email, a direct message on Twitter, Discord, uh, Carrier Pigeon. That was my joke from last episode. Uh, well, since we're talking about L. Edison, you can actually send me a Morse code recording. Uh, I'll play it. I won't know what it says, but we'll give it a shot anyway. Uh, 
to stat your favorite monster from one system to another system of your choice. It does not have to be a D&D monster. Uh, it can be. Uh, and you don't, don't have to stat it to D&D, but you can. Uh, in terms of how much detail, uh, I love detail, so give me as much as you're comfortable doing. If you want to go general, and you'd use general at the table, tell me general. If you would sit at home and crunch some numbers, crunch some numbers with me. I'd love to hear it. The one of the things that drove the call, uh, drove the competition, was a desire on my part and Jason's from Nerds Variety Cast, who we just heard earlier. We wanted to hear what all of you guys did, because we know what we do to bring monsters into our home games. We want to know what you do. Compare notes and build community. In terms of the Edison phone, uh, oh, before I forget, uh, with the details uh, as sparse or concise as I've made them, uh, I look forward to hearing your entry, Randy. Uh, and per your Edison comment, the audio is a little, uh, a little less than typical, so I, it may be the Bluetooth, uh, but it was much, much better this time. So I think that uh, either the road noise was messing with the recording or that uh, Jack Tesla was uh, using his coils to try to interrupt your comms again. Uh, sore loser, that man. Anyway, thanks for your call. Look, uh, always, always love hearing your voice. Hey, Taylor, I picked up Foundry also, and it's kind of fun, um, I guess. I got it mainly because I enjoyed it playing Savage Worlds and I liked the way it looked and um, I kind of got a little, they had like a little, uh, I, what do they call them? I don't know, like a one encounter type of adventure, a mini Savage Tale, I guess I call it. And uh, I played around a little bit with adding modules. I guess I haven't programmed, but I also set up my own Savage Worlds games to fill out and it looks, it looks pretty good um, as an alternative, like almost in between um, Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds. I think Fantasy Grounds, my opinion, a lot of people love it, but Fantasy Grounds can um, emphasize a little bit of the gamey and um, I want like a happy medium uh, with a little bit usability, more usability than Roll20 has. Hey there, Carl. Thanks for carling in. Because <laughs> it's my Carlin section. I may have to delete that joke. Talking about Foundry. I'm really enjoying it so far. The uh, Foundry is really smooth. I have not played an official game on it yet, but I have loaded up some maps. I have put some tokens down and moved them around. The big thing I like about Foundry, now it is butter smooth, but that may be partial because I am on the local server, so I am hitting my own host. It doesn't have to transfer the wire to bounce around, so that might be part of that. But I like that it has a module that will upload my dungeon draft maps. Now, I believe Roll20 will do this too, and I know MapTool will do this too, but Dungeon Draft, a great little product, it's like 20 bucks. You can, it's uh, got a bunch of tools that you can use to create your little maps. And if you load up the wall, if you load it up into the plugin, the foundry will automatically recognize where the dynamic lighting is. So that's one of the big things I like about VTTs. 
dynamic lighting, but it's also one of the huge pain in the butt points where it's uh, a challenge uh, to get a good working map together. And the fact that it does it for me uh, naturally out of making the, uh, the map, boom, sold. Talking about uh, the customization aspect, it is amazing, the customization. Now, it took me a bit to get used to it because it uses a templating framework that I have not used before, and it's designed to be all presentation and no logic, and that's a pain in the butt. I like logic, um, but I understand why they made the choice the way they did, and it uh, so you have total customization. You can make the character sheets do essentially whatever you want. You can write macros that do literally anything you want. I I see no reason, unless they've got like a security thing in there, why you wouldn't be able to use a macro to like hit a, a server off somewhere else. So you could theoretically import from third parties. And because the, I have not coded per se from Roll20, I haven't made any sheets there, but what I can tell you about Foundry is when you're making the system, it's written in JavaScript. And the app itself runs in a shell called Electron. Electron is just a wrapper around the engine that powers the Chrome and Edge browsers, the Chromium, the engine. And so anything you can do on a web page, you can do in Foundry, which is exciting to me. Exciting and also probably the reason I'm taking longer to finish this stupid, uh, <laughs> the stupid OD&D module that I'm working on is because I keep fiddling with it, but resisting most of the temptation uh, as it comes. Uh, talking to Fantasy Grounds, I have not used Fantasy Grounds. I'm told Fantasy Grounds is great if you're using the system that it's built for or the module that you've uploaded. Um, I have, uh, I know very little about that and I would uh, not know how to program that. Map Tool is all open source, so if I downloaded that, I could just literally gut the engine to make it do whatever I wanted, but that's kind of a pain in the butt. You talk about Foundry being a fun middle ground between Roll20 and uh, something else. It's been like three minutes and 57 seconds since I listened to your message to respond to it, so I've forgotten already. But uh, <laughs> but the, uh, what was I talking about? So it's this middle ground between usabilities, same story for the programming aspect. Uh, on the one extreme, you have uh, Roll20, which I'll use, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but hopefully it is, uh, for the purposes of the metaphor, where you have a little bit less control. Uh, and then on the other side, you have map tool, where you have total and complete control. But at the same time, the, the limited control you get on the one spectrum requires less work. Whereas with the more control, it requires a ton, ton of work. Foundry is a good middle ground where you can do essentially anything you want, but it's on top of the Foundry framework which means you only have to tweak the pieces you want to change. And so it's uh, a good accelerant to putting those systems and sheets and all that fun stuff together. Uh, if someone who has worked on MapTool or someone who makes a lot of character sheets wants to chime in and uh, provide a better comparative experience than the one I'm able to provide, go right on ahead. I will be uh, excited for that call. Anyway, uh, so uh, five minutes later to conclude, because I'm pulling up to the house now. Uh, dun, dun. To conclude, 
yes, I am enjoying Foundry so far, and I'm stoked to get it loaded up and uh, get some games in. So if you're interested, I will shoot you an invite to be on my uh, my alpha test. So I'll keep you keep I will keep you Carl informed, and I will keep everybody informed as I'm able. Thank you, Carl, for calling in and uh, prompting me to chatter on a little bit for uh, something that's really kind of cool. And I would encourage folks who are interested in uh, web tech to, to look at, if only for the, uh, the stack interest. Hey, Taylor. Pink Phantom here. Chiming in on the eternal retro clone and OSR questions. Uh, I look at it from a mechanic's point of view. I would say a retro clone is something that tries to uh, emulate as exactly as possible the mechanics of an older game just maybe tries to clarify things make them easier to find maybe reorganizes them a little and that an OSR game is trying to use uh, mechanics to to replicate the feel of a previous edition which you know is a nebulous uh, definition that can kind of mean anything to depending on who you ask and of course under those definitions you could probably say that the rule cyclopedia is the first retro clone and second edition is the first OS OSR game what are you going to do second edition OSR them's fighting words <laughs> now I'm teasing a little bit it, I do not care that much or at all but um, there is an interesting blog post not a blog post it's on a forum I'll have to find it that I saw recently that catalogs the differences between second edition and first. And it shows you some of the minutiae that were changed in the official rules uh, that will... Uh, Micah, are you, you're doing the edging? You're doing the hedging. That's different. Got it. Okay. He's, uh, doing, the, he's doing the hedging. Anyway, it catalogs the differences between the two systems. Yep, when they're doing the hedging, they need to use a hedger, like the hedger you are holding. Is that also a sword? Yeah, but I'm protecting it. It's a hedger. Well, you heard it here first. I'll get that link, and in the meantime, swords can also be edgers if you pretend. Also, you can pretend too, is OSR. Thank you most kindly, my pink friend, for calling in. Hey Taylor, really enjoyed the interview with Stephen Smith on the world of Weirth. I really, I really enjoyed the world building aspect and how he's really thought through, you know, how magic works in his game, how law versus chaos works in his game, and I look forward to seeing that product. And I'm gonna definitely check out his blog and uh, see how to do some world building like that. It, you know, the more I, I love series on homebrews and uh, home you know homebrew rules and, and uh, things like that and I think this really adds to it to really help us to develop our own products and make them unique and fun and not laden with spoilers because of the published stuff that we consume a lot so uh, thanks again for that interview thank you Stephen Smith uh, for interviewing with uh, Taylor 
Absolutely, my man. I'm glad to do those kind of interviews, and I hope to get more of them in the future. Thank you, Stephen, if you're listening, for calling in, or not calling in, for being on the podcast. And I think that was a great expose. I listen to my own podcasts a day or two after they come out. Uh, I know it's that's it's kind of like, uh, what's an expression I'm looking for? But anyway, it seems off to listen. I should be careful. I have to be careful. My son's mowing the lawn. But anyway, the uh, I listen to my own podcasts. Uh, it's it's a little silly, but it's a good because I forget what I talk about. And if I listen to them after I release them, then I can speak intelligently if uh, people talk. And uh, if I were to pick, you were getting so sweaty. Oh no! If I were to pick one thing to steal uh, from World of Weirth, it would definitely be the alignment. I really like the mechanization of alignment. Making it, making anything have a mechanical impact is uh, a good way to get players to engage with it. The lawnmower is dangerous. But anyway, my mower is dangerous. It is. We should be careful. Yes. And there you have it, or there we have it. Another episode in the bag. Uh, thank you callers for calling in. Thank you, contest entrants, for entering. Uh, I'm up to about maybe half a dozen or so at this point, so the odds of winning may be shrinking with every call, but I'm having a lot of fun listening, and I think a lot of folks will uh, have a lot of fun thinking about it uh, when when the contest episode drops. Either way, whether you call in or not, thank you for listening. And between now and when I talk to you again, delve on. You've got a chainsaw.